Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you today. Fresh off his plane from Singapore, we have Mike Cahill, CEO of Dora Labs and director of the Pith Data Association. I'm sure most of you, um, especially our listeners from the world of high-speed trading, will be familiar with Mr. Cahill's background at Jump trading and the role that Jump plays in our capital markets, not just in crypto, but beyond. And recently, Cahill uh, sort of spun out and is is basically leading the charge on, what shall we say, evangelizing um, the off-chain data platform. Sir, how are you? Thanks for joining the show. Frank, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. My first time on the show, and uh, um, I've been a long-time listener, so... Uh, First That's time what calling. they say. That's what they say. First time calling in. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, let's just start with the basics. I gave a, a teaser of your background. Walk us through uh, what you've been working on in crypto these past few years and, and your current seat. Uh, I come from a traditional finance background um, that is common within the crypto markets. Uh, first job out of college was at Morgan Stanley sales and trading desk in FX. Um, and then I started gravitating towards the electronic trading. Um, I kind of got the sense that the way that things were operating at the height of the financial crisis was probably not going to be the way that they'd operate in 10 years. Um, and so my first role at a trading firm was at KCG. Mm-hmm. It was the largest U.S. equity market maker. Um, and I was hired to build out the FX market making business. Um, that was in, acquired by Virtue, mm-hmm. um, so another high-frequency trading firm. Um, and it was at that time during the due diligence of the acquisition where I started getting into crypto. Um, that was 2017. That was 2017. What a vintage. What a vintage. <laughs> I remember I remember that deal. That was, And then KCG, of course, uh, acquired Gecko. And then, yeah. then that entity rolled into Virtue. Um, and then... What brought you to um, launch this current this current firm? So I went to Jump um, to focus on crypto, and I worked there for a while. Um, Jump has been one of the founding contributors to the Pith Network. There are others. Um, the idea was really around creating a best-in-breed market data feed that can service the, the blockchains um, as an oracle. Um, and that resonated well with trading firms. I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit more detail. Um, but some of the initial trading firms were Virtue and GTS, um, in addition to Jump. I've been a contributor to Pith since the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Dural Labs is the formation and really the expression of the maturity of the Pith network to have an independent entity that's focused on building really the, you know, engineering and business development needs for the network. Mm-hmm. Um, Dural Labs is not exclusive to Pith, and so in the future could do other things, but, you know, that's our that's our focus. So I'm joined with about 20 others, um, many of which have worked in the high-frequency trading space. A number of them came from Jump as well. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so about half the DNA is from Jump, and then the rest are from... Other, other big firms, mostly with financial 
um, backgrounds. So BMP, Goldman Sachs, um, a few kind of Web2, AWS, um, some Web3, Chorus1. Um, so we've got a, a, a nice group uh, of people who we think are real all-stars. You know, the thing that I, I learned at, at Jump was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky place to get a job. Um, it's a very desirable place to work um, for obvious reasons. Um, they sit at the apex of a lot of trading, um, as do their peers. And that has been the philosophy in trying to build Dura Labs. We want to have what we think are only eight players, um, high talent density, um, and we think we've constructed a, a great initial team. If there are listeners who are maybe not familiar with with Pith and what it's sort of been doing these past few years, we're talking about an ecosystem of, you know, I don't know, over 80 some odd. 90. 90 providers. This is the creme de la creme of, of the financial services world, um, the trading firms, the exchanges. And then what are the applications being built on top? Um, there are hundreds, I, I imagine, leveraging the feed. And how do you juxtapose those applications with the way in which uh, other developers in our space are maybe using things that folks may be more familiar with, like a, a chain link? Hmm. So you've gotten a lot of it right. It's um, Pith is differentiated by being a first-party Oracle network. So there are 90 contributors. Those are the nodes in the Pith network. Mm-hmm. Other Oracles, inclusive of Chainlink, have a different structure. Um, so they typically have nodes that are incentivized to aggregate data from other places. Um, and usually it's from you know places that are, are, are aggregators themselves. And the way that we've synthesized the value prop of Pith is all oracles need to solve for trust. Um, Mm -hmm. But V1 oracles really did that at the expense of speed. So Pith is designed to solve for trust um, in a very high speed, low latency environment. Um, And there's like three innovations that allowed it. The first one I mentioned, it's this, well, let's get the data published directly on chain. The second one is do it to an application-specific chain. This is called PithNet, built on Solana technology, um, and distribute from there. And then the third one is have additional information that tells you what the price is with some sense of the relativity. So at any given point, as you and your listeners, millions and millions of listeners will know, there's no single price of Bitcoin at any given billions. point. Billions. <laughs> billions of listeners. Um, there's the price on, of, of Bitcoin on Binance, Upbit, Coinbase. No, they, mm-hmm. they typically agree, but sometimes they don't. And so um, if you want to be fast and you're averaging together, you could get into a position you're, if you're only sending out one price of giving a bad price. So Pith has innovated this thing called confidence intervals. And confidence intervals tell you in real time what the range of acceptable um, values are. So if Bitcoin's trading at 27300 the confidence interval could be something like plus or minus $10 or plus or minus $1,000, um, which would give you a lot of information. So those are the, the, the key differentiated features that will allow Pith to be a high-speed, trustworthy oracle. So so, so basically, you, you not only get the price right to break it down for folks, but you also get a sense of how accurate that price is a reflection of the overall market. Yes, and that's exactly right. And that's such an important innovation. 
although it sounds incredibly simple um, and sounds obvious. Um, but it allows you to make more price predictions more frequently versus a system that doesn't include a confidence interval. The assumption is it's right, right? The assumption's confidence is at 100. Um, but um, Pith allows you to give more predictions or more updates with this additional information. And that can be used on chain. Um, a simple way would be to take the pith price, discount it by the confidence interval, and use only the discount versus the price as the contribution to collateral, for example. So in a fast moving market, um, when you have this temporary spike on say one exchange, um, you reduce the impact of somebody taking out one of these you know, mango style loan attacks um, where the collateral becomes highly valued, a loan is taken against it, and then the collateral goes back to its normal value, and there's bad debt on the um, on the protocol. So, like, let's let's maybe talk about a little bit about w- who's building what on on Pith as far as developers are concerned. Um, kind of have a sense of of how this data that they can leverage is differentiated, but what are they doing with it? About fifty percent of the value secured or locked on on um, all blockchains uses an oracle. And there's two broad categories. There's lending, and then there's trading. And then there's some other stuff. Um, but those are generally speaking like the broad categories. And lending is very simple to understand. And in fact, you don't really, you never really historically needed a very low latent oracle product. Um, and that's why the first generation of oracles ushered in DeFi 1.0. Right, so you have Aave and Compound. Um, they're they're relatively simplistic machines. They don't need to have very high fidelity data. Um, it all works um, pretty great. Now, cut to where we are today, and what sort of usage was not possible before. I will give you an example, and it'll be an example that I'll make a prediction on um, that hopefully sounds optimistic in these in these tr- these tired and troubling times. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, um, if you look back a year in the summer of 2022, um, you didn't see much activity on chain for derivatives trading. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for it. You first saw examples of this emerge in Solana because Solana was the genesis of high throughput DeFi. Um, so there was some perps and there were some on chain order books, um, but not to any real meaningful scale. That only started about a, a year ago. It was about under 10 basis points of, of the volume relative to Binance um, back then. This year is different. So this year, we've seen that spread compress a bit. We're about 2% if you count up all the on-chain derivative applications relative to Binance. Um, but it's a meaningful growth, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you still have about 20 to $30 billion a day at Binance. So 2%, you know, is, is, is pretty good. This was not really possible before. There's effectively been three innovations that have enabled this. And when people talk about investing in infrastructure um, and other people kind of roll their eyes, you know, okay, fine, how much more investment would you need? Where's the killer app? I think this is what they potentially miss. So Mm -hmm. the innovations are we now have more fast blockchains, right? So Solana was kind of the first. Um, Optus, Sui, Cosmos with Say, Injective, many others, um, Optimism, Arbitrum, ZK Sync, 
those are all great examples of where developer activity can occur in high throughput. Um, so that's number one. Breakthrough number two is better bridging. We've seen a lot of advanced features rolled out from Wormhole, Layer Zero, now CCIP, and um, it's becoming much more mature, not just for asset bridging, but also for message parsing. Pith plays a role in this as well. So Pith has a unique design where everything's published to Pithnet. There's 350 symbols. Every time Pithnet aggregates, which is every 400 milliseconds, one of those prices is eligible to be delivered to 32 different blockchains. And it's pulled on-chain using the bridging of Wormhole. So whenever someone trades on a derivative trade, um, which usually will use an oracle of some sort, you can get incredibly low latency price deliveries. Um, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. So Synthetics uses Pith as its primary oracle. And when a user wants to trade on Synthetics, what happens behind the scenes is the Pith price from Pithnet is matched. And the time that they want to trade is requested. And that exact message is sent over to Optimism. And then they're settled within about two seconds. Um, that was never possible before. All of those features really needed to be built. And we've now gotten to 2%. We're very close to feature parity with some of the back-end elements of DEX trading or, or um, derivatives trading on, on um, centralized exchanges. What we haven't yet cracked is the user experience element. Mm. And so as that improves, which it inevitably will, um, there's a likelihood that we'll see that close into, say, something like 10% in 2024. And I think that's a huge breakthrough um, and something that people probably haven't necessarily appreciated so much. Well, let's make it relevant for for them. What does what does that mean maybe for just the average um, DGEN trader in terms of that increased efficiency for them punting meme coins? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things. Um, so the first one is some of the features of um, blockchains that get touted often, self-custody um, for one, transparency um, for another. Um, I think those are, those are really important things. There's another um, almost symbolic victory here, though, um, which I don't think should be discounted. It's that if the DGEN traders aren't eating their own dog food mm. and actually doing something on-chain, then there's really no hope for all the other applications that we're hoping to have built. Um, the view of DeFi that gets me the most excited is, you know, the classic, you know, more efficient, more accessible access to capital markets. Um, the farmer in Argentina having more access to be able to save or to invest in things. A decentralized Robinhood or interactive brokers, if you will. Um, that gets me excited. And this is a first step into building, you know, that vision, which I think is going to be a big breakthrough. Okay. And so walk us through like how this community of, of financial services firms through Pith help establish that, that future um, in terms of, 
when I think about some of these names, right, they, they may not necessarily do anything in crypto. What, what data are they contributing that, I guess to flip the question around, that's relevant today and then could be relevant in future? So there's a, like a usage um, question, which I'll address first, and then I'm going to talk about the supply. Mm-hmm. So the usage question is more around, you know, what's the intermediate step before a end state that consists of at least some trading on the blockchain and perhaps some trading off the blockchain. Like, let's assume that at some point we'll get to some critical mass where trading on chain is is relevant and useful. There are two ways to tie those markets together in this kind of evolving period. Um, The first way to do it is to have every trader connected to every market. That's what high-frequency trading firms do. When you trade on you know, any of the 14 U.S. equity exchanges, the fact that you're getting a really good price is a feature of high-frequency traders that are showing the markets everywhere. Um, now, that's unlikely to happen immediately. So you need to come up with a bootstrapped way to do it. And the bootstrapped way to do this is to use a high-quality market data feed. Mm. So the And there's a couple of strategies that you can use with that high-quality data feed. One is you can trade at the data feed's price. And so that's what I kind of mentioned when Synthetix was you know, trading. They'll use the PITH price to trade. Another thing that you can do is you can have an independent order book, but you can have it nudged back into line using funding rates. So if the order book is priced at a discount to the Oracle price, you can have an incentive mechanism where people who are long get paid carry and people who are short um, uh, have to pay the carry. Um, and then there's other things around like basis feeds as well. So you can become creative. So that's sort of like the, this is what the Oracle can do to encourage the growth of these types of financial markets in the future. And then, you know, if you back up into what's the incentive for someone to contribute that data or how meaningful is it that the data is coming from these institutions, um, I think that's really important as well. So financial market data is a mature industry. Mm -hmm. Um, It was $6.5 billion in revenue in 2022. Um, All that revenue went to the top exchanges. Um, Now, if you just break down into first principles what financial market data is, it's the prices with which traders want to trade with one another at or the prices Mm -hmm. with which they just executed. Um, And so there tends to be some frustration from trading firms that they only ever pay these fees and they never actually receive any revenue from it. Um, So one of the innovations with PITH was, why don't we create a more fair and wider distribution of sourcing for financial market data than just relying on a handful of exchanges to do so? And that took off like wildfire. That's why there's so many trading firms involved. They sit on this effectively found resource and are able to monetize it for the very first time. And they have lots of data. Right. So they've got crypto data, but they also have this highly coveted real time financial data from equities, futures, um, interest rate, commodities, FX and so on. Um, So we've figured out an innovative sourcing mechanism to be able to provide high quality data on chain and done so in a way where it's now accessible. It's not competing with their existing commercial structure. Um, So they're able to do this for some period of time that allows things to be built and for the business model to be developed and for, you know, kind of 
this infrastructure to be available and then um, power these these applications. So what will what will let's say we, we fast forward to the year 2020. Uh, now, let's see soon. 2030. <laughs> um and there's this Pith network, and then there's New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. What does the difference look like between those two sets, those two data environments from the perspective of uh, Frank Chaparro, Tower, Dell, Jump, Inc., trading firm? That's the name of it. You should trademark it. <laughs> um there's a couple of, of options, of course, um, because, you know, that's that's pretty far out. Because this is this and it kind of goes just to set some context for maybe some listeners. Right. Like this kind of speaks to the old debate of, um, you know, is is uh, with the trading firms complaining about how expensive the access to data is from New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ um, and how the sort of duopoly is is um, toxic to the markets. They would point to the SIP and say, well, you can access the market for free. Um, so I guess to maybe actually add SIP into the equation, um, just sort of what the market can, what, what the sort of free access to the market um, that everyone can tap into, PITH, and then this sort of more proprietary data uh, from the exchanges, do they all um, sit in this future world or is one going to be more valuable than, than the other? Yeah, difficult to, to tell. Um, the speeds at which Pith is distributed today is at 400 milliseconds, which is blockchain fast, but TradFi slow, right? So <laughs> the, you know, the speeds with which the high frequency trading firms operate is, you know, sub milliseconds. And, um, and I think there's going to be some period of time for sure where, you know, those off-chain specific co-located data centers will will have that ecosystem, right? The opportunity set almost defines how much people are willing to pay. Um, there's like a maximum value theoretical equation that you can come to. It's like how much money are people making? And that's effectively what you could charge them um, as an exchange. Um, and that's one of the gripes that trading firms has is like the, the fees just keep going up all the time. It's, it feels a little bit like a shakedown. It's like, you know, how much is the fee? Well, how much you got? It's like the mafia. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, that's the way that a lot of trading firms view that relationship. Um, and it's, a, it's a, obviously a cynical approach. Like there, there are other things that the exchanges do to improve the quality um, of, the, um, of the trading experience. My old colleagues at the NASDAQ would say that the... Uh they're just asking for you to pass the salt and pepper while you enjoy the meat and mashed potatoes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so the, you know, the, the, the area where there's the biggest focus for on-chain data is to create really the types of applications that expand the reach of the financial markets. Um, I'll give you an analogy now that summarizes to me how I think this plays out. So, Back in the kind of 80s and early 90s, the U.S. had an incredible landline network, second to none. Mm -hmm. Some would say best in the world. Um, in the Nordics, that was not possible. You have some of the lowest density population countries, and you've got these giant fjords and um, 
mountainous trains. <laughs> <laughs> and so yes. the two biggest mobile phone companies were Nokia and Ericsson. Um, and they innovated because they needed to, right? They had this necessity to create phone networks where they couldn't lay landlines. Of course, mobile phones were better than the landline, even the landline network that the U.S. created, and eventually it was used. Um, I think of that as the analogy of there are areas where people are in pretty tough situations and they don't have access to really any capital markets. Um, that needs to be solved first. And I think that that'll get solved in Web3 and DeFi somehow. But I think that the tooling that'll be used to solve that problem will be so good that in the developed world, like in the US, where there are very functional capital markets, we'll start to borrow those things. So PIF is a tool that's really developed for the expansion of capital markets worldwide and the creation and formation of applications that can build things for people that really need it. And then my prediction is that in 2030, some of that stuff will just be so good that either NYSE will take it and incorporate it in their own um, kind of business model, or someone else will do it and they'll expand there and NYSE will become smaller. So in that latter scenario, is it, is it just a derivative of, of the value of the data as the value of of this pool of data increases, it then is it sort of zero sum where the other proprietary data becomes maybe less valuable and it almost democratizes it in a sense um, that makes it more affordable generally? It's possible. I mean, typically what happens with these types of expansionary um, technology innovations is everything becomes cheaper but more widely distributed, right? So, um, you know, Spotify is worldwide. You can pay 20 bucks a month to get the entire world's collection of records. Um, you couldn't pay any amount of money to really get that back in the, you know, the I 90s. Know, but remember when it was nine ninety nine? Now it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like $20. So. Uh, Still pretty good. Still pretty good. It's all right. Yeah. Um, no, but so I don't think it's necessarily, you know, zero sum. It's expansionary. So you go to, to more markets and your, your unit economics probably improve, um, but then your overall revenues probably in, increase. Hmm. Let's take a moment to sort of talk about how our capital markets in crypto have evolved. And I'm sure we can sort of tie in um, Pitt's sort of role in that evolution Um we, we, we seem to have, you know, made a lot of progress from when you started in the industry up until last year's credit crisis and um, this year's sort of li liquidity drain, I guess you could describe it. Um, what do you think? It, it seemed like the way a lot of people describe it to me is it had a lot of the uh, trappings of the traditional financial services world all kind of tied together, taped together, but with a less solid foundation that made it easy to snap apart. Um, despite sort of like, if you think about the trajectory of it going in from 2017 to 19 to 20 to 21, um, you saw levels of sophistication and maturation added, but again, it still kind of came apart. What do you, what do you attribute to that? And, 
Um, where do you think we go from from here? I guess yeah. this is more uh, about the centralized um, infrastructure. Yeah, it's the centralized infrastructure, and um, I, can't, I don't think you can discount for the effect of bad actors. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it's almost like it's almost like you have to say, like, well, you know, except for the placebo effect, but it's mm-hmm. it's so important if. FTX was not stealing customer funds, I think we're in such a different place right now than where we are. Mm. Um, I just, I just really don't think you can discount that at all. That, that is something that took all of us by surprise. Um, and it set us back a lot. Interesting. I mean, this is a debate that we can have. Um, surely some bad person would have came down the line that could have tested the boundaries and parameters of, of the way in which the infrastructure was set up, right? I mean, there are some granular things we can think about um, in terms of like the collateral that was accepted and um, maybe the way some of these shops were set up. But, but yeah, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe he was a once in a lifetime type of, type of, type of figure that <laughs> wouldn't maybe not have happened. Um, maybe the space would not have been brought to its knees ever in that way, if not for one Sam Bankman-Fried. But, but what, what do you think improvements can be made? Because we are still, you know, grappling um, with, with the sort of aftermath of the situation. How do you see these trading firms, many of which, you know, are not trading as much as they once were or offering as many services as they once did? How do they, how do they move forward? Yeah, trading firms are, are purely going to be mostly profit motivated. And so when the opportunity set decreases, which is generally a function of either volatility or volume or both, mm-hmm. um, you're going to see less activity from trading firms. As that increases, I'm, I'm sure they'll, they'll all figure ways to get back into the markets um, materially. Um, but I, I think you're right. Like, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, this could happen and, um, we don't, we're not really looking for a regulation to avoid this to happen. That, that's not necessarily that what we're looking for. It's more that this was just such a well-performed kind of scam or rug on all of us that we're figuring out what those things that we need to have in. And it takes a while to reset. Um, I think one of the impacts that we're seeing is, is really this drive towards on-chain trading. Like, you know, at the end of the day, blockchain sort of does fix this. And when you have your, you know, your keys and your wallet, um, then a Sam Bankman-Fried type person is incapable of giving himself a very generous loan, um, you know, using your money. So, you know, th- that that to me feels like the first step. And as I mentioned before, if if crypto degens can't eat the dog food that is, you know, on tra- on chain trading, they're not eating the dog food in a sense. I mean, it's not like we saw a, a, a significant surge in decentralized exchange volume following FTX. I think we saw a slight uptick. Um, yeah, I think it was about from one percent to two percent, um, and it's been pretty consistent around two percent. And so, what what's keeping what's keeping like you know large trading firms from or even just regular regular users as well, from just completely uh, moving the the majority or the bulk of their activity over to DeFi. What are the impediments that stand in the way? If if the promise has it has never been more um, glaring or self evident. Yeah, I think I think there's 
there's still a user experience problem. Um, mm. There, there are some companies that are are trying to fix this and give these like feature parities. Um, Infinex is an example that gives like a web two experience to a front end that then trades on chain. I expect that in the next 12 months, we'll see a lot of those. And it's some simple stuff, right? It's, um, you know, having some customer service chat app that allows you to navigate the website, um, maybe abstracting away all of the wallet usage and just make it as simple as what you see in your wallet on Binance, which is like withdraw from deposit to that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think that, that they actually will go a really long way in advancing this because the backend's pretty close, right? Like the, the hardcore traders moved and they are the 2%, um, that, that are trading there. Um, but they're really the exception. And I think that we'll see a growth in this kind of retail experimental group and we'll start to see kind of the, the, the early, um, kind of the early wave, um, of adopters. I think that's really well said, and to sort of to sort of reconfigure um, uh, your answer, it, it can it can basically be boiled down to DeFi has the back end that CFI does not, while CFI has the front end that DeFi does not. And once you kind of can marry those two, you have you have a recipe for um, a world in which. Um, Trading is more efficient whilst um, not a, uh, not a place where uh, that can breed life to Sam Bankman-Fried-like figures. Yeah, I think that's right, Frank. What was your What was your reaction? I mean, what what do you do? You remember the the everything sort of feels like it was a year ago almost. Jeez, Alou. Yeah. Soon. I think I think I think another like eight months um after the trial, we'll yeah. stop we'll stop having to think and talk about it. I couldn't get my head around how Alameda could not be profitable. <laughs> and as a as a high frequency trading firm operating allegedly at scale, that's the one thing that was just mind blowing to me. How could they yeah. possibly be losing so much money? Where did it go? I guess they were just terrible traders. Is it that? Yeah, sure. What do you think? Like, was it was it like boil it down for us? Um, just like not directionally knowing where the market was going, or was there maybe some sort of you know system? Obviously, they were operationally inept um, using QuickBooks to do their accounting, etc. Um, but as someone who sort of like worked within the the, the sort of the underbelly. Um, what do you think could have been so wrong there? It's, it's, it's tough. I, I have to assume it's some combination of like a death of a thousand cuts initially. Mm -hmm. And then like a whole bunch of like bet the firm hell Mary's that all went wrong or like mm -hmm. some of them went right, but most of them went wrong. So like, I think that they justified losing a little bit of money every day because they were getting more traction on FTX. And so like Alameda was like compressing the spreads. They were like the market maker. And I assume that in like SBF's head, it was like, well, net net, like the entities are, are kind of up. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as was discovered, like never really paid much attention to it and kind of lost track. Mm -hmm. And I think that at some point people said, 
shit, we lost a whole lot of money. Um, <laughs> let's go get some scratch offs. And, um, I don't think the scratch offs, um, were as valuable as they were hoping. And, um, you know, that's, that's the only way I can think about it. <laughs> well, for me, it's like, what, what was interesting to me, um, was that video where Sam's kind of like in the chair all the way back. There's Ryan Salem, a few other guys. Um, and he's sort of like, I think he's bidding up something, Bitcoin or, or offloading tether. I don't know exactly what the trade was, but it just felt very like not the way I would picture, um, uh, a sophisticated quant shop, but I've never, I've never worked in one, so I don't know. Uh, or a, or a high speed firm. I, I, you know, you kind of picture it in this day and age, just, just like the ones and zeros <laughs> and, and the green and white sort of imagery. Um, and especially like when I think about, and I, I, I'll have to visit um, one of these shops one of these days. It's actually, I've been to, been to some crypto ones, but you kind of always envision it as everyone, you know, kind of like coding in this day and age versus like um, sort of that more, it just felt more like a liar's poker type of deal than what um, I would, I would sort of think about. Yeah, we were, we were amazed. I was amazed by that. Um, and so were my colleagues, um, at the trading firms that I worked at are new. Um, you're right in thinking that like a typical modern day trading firm, the alpha is done in the preparations. It's more like baking than like kind of cooking. It's like, you know, you, yes. you go and you do yeah. it and then you throw it in the oven. If a trader, like, cause there are traders or book runners, um, they tend to be like more operational. It's if they're doing a lot of stuff, it's usually a bad day. They're like a firefighter. Mm-hmm. Um, they are in terms of like the hierarchy, they're typically not like the, the Michael Lewis mm-hmm. of liars poker. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's no more like, um, like the masters of the universe. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're no longer like masters of the universe yeah. who are going out and thinking about like, ah, you know what? Let's just, let's just skew it and get a whole bunch of Bitcoin now. Like it, 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 it would never, that guy'd be fired. Yeah, exactly. And so like when, the, when there's a trader that's doing something, you're like, why are you? So first off the quant will come out and be like, why are you touching shit? And, <laughs> and then they have to answer because something's gone wrong. Now in crypto, you actually do touch shit a lot more. Sure, because than in, things like, go wrong more. So it, it, it does seem yeah. to reason, but but nothing like that. Like what, what he was doing with the YouTube videos initially, where he's like, yeah, you know, I see this arbitrage here. And we were like, this is, this doesn't, doesn't seem like somebody that worked, spent a lot of time at Jane street. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad that you agreed because it just, <laughs> just, it, and, and that's not to say that like inside a trading firm is, is sterile. I mean, there is something at the same time that was a bit um, romantic uh, about that, that scene in a way, it kind of brings you back to, um, simpler times. Yesteryear. <laughs> Yesteryear. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, sir. Um, so what, what should we expect over the next six months to close, close the conversation out? What are you, what do you have baking? <laughs> <laughs> so Pith has gone cross chain, um, just nine months ago and it was the model that I described. So PithNet launched, connected to wormhole. It has now gone from 2000 price deliveries per day to about 2 million. So the growth has been really exponential. There's been four 
um, new applications that have used Pith per week or integrated Pith per week. Um, there's over 200 of them today um, on these 32 different blockchains. Um, that is what we would expect to see more of, um, more growth on the, the usage side. By pretty much every metric, Pith is the second most used um, Oracle. We're certainly the, the largest first-party Oracle network, um, and things continue to grow there. Our um, pace is three new publishers um, per month, and, and that's been consistent since we started. Um, and so that's what we hope to do. Um, we hope to continue to develop, make things cheaper and faster. We had an upgrade today, um, the Perseus upgrade, which decreases the gas delivery of Pith prices to all chains from 30 to 90%, depending upon how many symbols. Um, and um, yeah, and just keep uh, hammering. Excellent. Well, Michael, thanks so much for joining the program. Thanks a lot, Frank, for having me on. Yeah, of course. And The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day. Mm-hmm.